The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Well, I'm certainly thrilled to be with you in Ephesians again today and look forward to continuing this wonderful book with you. Very thankful for, for Roland preaching so effectively and encouragingly in last Sunday. I'm really grateful for that too. This morning as we continue in Ephesians 4, especially if you're kind of just merging in or just getting the lay of the land again, I want to remind us of two key themes that we really must know before we get to chapter 4. The first one is this. Salvation is entirely in Jesus Christ. Okay, salvation is entirely in Jesus Christ. And if the word salvation is new to you, it's a Bible word that describes all of the good things that God does to deliver us from sin's consequences, its power, and its very presence in our life. And chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, said 11 times in one sentence that that happens in Christ from eternity past to eternity future. All right, that's the first theme you have to know before you get to the second half of the book. It's all in Jesus Christ. And here's the second theme you have to know before we get to the second half of the book, that it is all of grace. So Ephesians 2 says it so memorably, for by grace you have been saved. Not just justified, not just adopted, not just redeemed, not just sanctified, not just glorified. The entire thing has happened by grace. Not of yourself, not of works, lest any man should boast. So it's all in Jesus Christ, and it is all of grace from beginning to end. We must know that. Because the second half of Ephesians is about how then we live. We, we can live differently than we used to live, but only in Jesus Christ and only by grace. Now, I normally don't make you flip around a lot. But have your thumb ready. We're going to flip a little bit here at the beginning. In Ephesians 2, would you look down at verse 1? I know we're going to preach chapter 4 today. Flip back a couple pages to chapter 2. And I want you to see a word in the Bible. And you're going to see it over and over and over in this book. And it is the word walk. Look in Ephesians 2, please. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Have you ever recognized someone by their walk? They just have a unique gait. I remember a kid in college, I could see him across the quad. And even if I couldn't make out his face, and even if it was hazy, I knew it was him by the way he walked. He would put his hands in his pocket. He had this long legged, like inspector gadget kind of walk that he had. And I always could recognize him no matter how far away he was. He just walked a certain way. Verse 2 that you just saw said, we once walked a certain way. But now look down in verse 10 of the same chapter of Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A new walk in Christ Jesus by grace. Now flip to chapter 4. We're going to keep seeing this word. I won't show you all of them because there's so many. Chapter 4, if you're using the Pew Bible, page 1161. Chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, verse 1, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now look down at verse 17 of chapter 4. Same chapter, now verse 17. 
Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Just one more, okay? Turn to chapter 5, please. Last one I'll show you this morning. Chapter 5, and let's look at verse 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So the second half of the book of Ephesians is about a new walk, a new lifestyle in Christ by grace. So this morning, our sermon is Christ, our victor's gifts. And if you're using the Pew Bible, page 1161 is where you want to be. And the gift is how we can walk, we can live a new way. In the second half of the book, he'll talk about our new walk at home as husbands, as wives, as parents, our new walk at work, our new walk with our neighbors. But I think intentionally, Paul begins with our new walk in the church, the new walk we have in Christ's body. That's today's chapter. And really just two parts today, okay? Part one, verses one through six, our new walk is a walk in unity to embrace our oneness together. And the second part, verses 7 through 16, our new walk includes individuality, but for the sake of unity. So uniqueness, but for the sake of oneness. All right, so part one, embracing our oneness. We'll go a little more slowly now, and we'll be in just one spot, Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Paul reminds them here again at the beginning of the new walk section that he is a prisoner himself. He has a new walk and a new lifestyle. But now he urges them, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. He wants them to learn how to walk. This is very important. We do not earn our walk. We learn our walk. Okay, our walk is a gift in Christ by grace. We do not earn it but we must learn it. I don't know if you've ever been in physical therapy. I once blew my back out in vacation Bible school, which is not a good place to blow your back out. I thought I was younger than I am. I jumped in the air. I tried to do the splits. I was wearing flippers. I came down and I was in an ambulance wearing scuba diving gear. (laughs) It's very interesting when the first three doctors you see ask you what body of water you were plumbing the depths of that you got injured in. And it was just the four-foot stage at our, at our church. When I was in physical therapy, and perhaps you've seen this in physical therapy, you see people doing the most rudimentary activities, but they're very difficult for them to do because they're learning something from the bottom up. Perhaps you've seen someone with their foot moving what looks like a Frisbee on the ground after a hip replacement because they're learning again how to walk. Here's what God wants us to know. He wants us to learn a new way of walking. Look at it in verse 2. Here, brother and sister, is how you can walk in Christ, but we must learn it. We can walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Let me explain each word so that we learn what Christ wants us to learn. Humility is a proper lowliness in which we recognize our creatureliness and we esteem others as better than ourselves and we depend on God. Gentleness is a willingness to set aside our rights, which makes it completely different from our culture where we're constantly asserting our rights. 
Patience makes allowing for other people's shortcomings instead of dismissing them or retaliating against them. Those are all nouns, and now they lead to a participle that's in the imperative. It's a command of how this is fulfilled. We bear with one another. That means we commit to each other despite the tensions and conflicts that will inevitably arise. And we do that, notice, with one another. These are only true of our Lord Jesus, aren't they? That is why this is his walk in us. Now, verse 3 continues what this new walk looks like. And again, it begins with an imperative participle. Eager, or your translation may say, making every effort to maintain unity of the capital S Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace. Something in the grammar, I think, is, is interesting. The descriptions, humility, gentleness, and patience are nouns, but then they're fulfilled by imperative participles, bearing one another, making every effort. Here's what that means. If we nod at agreement and we say, oh, yeah, yeah, humility, that's important. Gentleness, yeah, yeah, that's a good one too. Patience, I agree, that's a good one. That's not what he's saying. He's saying not just to know that these things are, but that they are fleshed out in the church. So here's what that means. Answer before the Lord in your own heart. Do you avoid difficult people? Do you retaliate against those who are bothering you? He wants us to walk in the humility, gentleness, and patience. Not just to know that it exists, but to bring virtue into action. So what do we do when we don't want to do that? Which I surely can relate with. I would encourage you to pray a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, you know that I'm struggling with this person. In my heart, I find them difficult. And in my own strength and in my own effort and in my own manipulative planning, I would choose to mistreat them and then justify it. But Lord, that is not how Christ treats me. So Lord, work out of me the humility, gentleness, and patience that you alone can work that I do not possess. Maybe there's someone you ought to pray that about today. Now, these verses are telling us how to learn how to walk. But then they tell us we can learn how to walk and we'll walk the same way because we share the same thing. Have you seen family members that kind of all have the same walk? A couple that grows together with the same style of movement? Verses 4 through 6 tells us why we share that. Look at it. There is one body. What's the body in Ephesians? Christ's body, his church. One spirit. Who's that? God the spirit, the Holy Spirit, who glorifies Jesus. One hope, we were told in chapter 1. That's the resurrected life of Christ that we share. One Lord, that is surely the Lord Jesus. One faith, the faith in our Lord Jesus. One baptism in which we are put into Jesus. One God and Father who has planned our salvation. He is over all, through all, and in all. How many ones were there? Did you count? There are seven. Here are the ones which we share in common. And brother and sister, what God wants us to know, what we must always remember, is what we share together is far more important than what makes us different. In fact, our uniqueness is only for the purpose of our oneness. Have you noticed how different this is from our culture? 
Aren't we constantly told in the messaging in our culture that what makes me me is what makes me different from you? Whether that's my skin color or my sexuality or my socio-political economic standing, what makes me me is that I'm different from you. The Bible actually says what makes me me is what I share with you. What makes me me is what I have in common with you. Um, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds in uh, a history background, but Robert Bella is a sociologist that's been tracking this trend of, of highlighting our differences to have a sense of self. And he calls that expressive individualism, which is a good term for how I come to grips with who I am based on being different from everybody else. Um, in, in history, there's a trend that's happened over and over, and here's essentially how it works. There's an area where humans are not doing well, and then in God's grace, the gospel comes to that area, and the principles of Christianity cause that area to flourish. And then what almost always happens next is society takes the blessings of that flourishing and tries to detach them from God. And then like an arrow... They shoot it way past the target to now being at a place where it no longer helps flourishing, but it actually hurts society. Coming out of the medieval period, most places in Western civilization devalued individuals terribly. Humans were numberless and faceless tools of the state, pieces of the army. They had no individual value. And so when Christianity was recovered in the medieval period at the late part of it, We were told, wait, 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 individuals do have value because each individual is made in the image of God. And so human flourishing went up. And then in the Enlightenment, people said, well, well, wait, I have individual value apart from God. And so they took the arrow and shot it way past the target. And now instead of saying, I have value because of my creator, people say, I have value because of what I've created. I have made myself my own value. Now, of course, this can't work. It doesn't work for a couple obvious reasons. When I try to make myself valuable by my own self-creation, I quickly find out that I'm very fickle. And what I think makes me valuable tends to change even in my own short lifetime. And a second thing we find out is true also, that when I think my value is found by looking within, I'm being dishonest. In 1976, Gail Sheehy wrote a book called Passages, and here's what she wrote in the book. You can only become yourself when you look inside and express yourself apart from any external valuations or accreditation. But I'd like to challenge her assertion for a second. She's saying the only way I can know who I am is if I look within and follow my impulses and urges. But does anyone really do that? without caring how they fit in anywhere else. This thought experiment is not totally unique to me, but let's go with it for a second. Imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior in 800 AD in England. And he has two urges. One of his urges internally is a sexual proclivity, whatever one you want to think of, that is not popularly accepted by his clan. But the other urge he has deep inside is he likes murdering people with his bare hands if they've wronged him. Now, in 800 AD, in Anglo-Saxon, which of those two urges do you think he'll say, this is the true me? And which of those two urges do you think he'll suppress and say, that is not me? 
The point of my simple thought experiment is that actually we all care how we fit with other people. See, it's a lie to say what makes me me is what makes me different from you. All of us know at the intuitive level, what makes me me is what I share. And the good news of the gospel is what we share is not only that we are made in the image of God, but that we are renewed in the body of Christ. And that's what Ephesians 4 is telling me. I am who I am, not because of what I find within, but because what I've received from without through the body of Christ. I want you to further know that these calls to unity are unities based on seven realities of truth. Here's why I think that's important to remember. We're not that far from political season impending on us again. And pretty commonly at this time of year, we hear rather hollow or frankly rather manipulative calls for unity. And it's important for us to remember that unity is not an end in of itself. Unity is based on truth. And this passage reminds us our unity is based on a shared reality of the one Lord, the one baptism, the one hope, the one Father, and the one call that we all have in common. In other words, it's not cosmetic unity. It's concrete unity. This unity, though, I need to admit, is a unity in Christ, not in distinctives that may be important, but may be beyond Christ. I think it's very important to be able to laugh at ourselves. And so let me tell you a joke that makes fun of us. Here's how the joke goes. The joke is that St. Peter is giving people a tour of heaven. And as he's giving them a tour of heaven, he goes by this big area that is a room that has no windows. And so the person receiving the tour asks Peter, what is that room without any windows? And Peter says, well, that's where we put all the Baptists because they think they're the only ones here. <laughs> and I've always loved that joke because it's good to laugh at ourselves. And it's good to remember what Ephesians 4 says. What we actually share most importantly is our one Lord Christ. So our oneness does actually unite us. And our oneness is in our Lord. Now, the second half of the passage We'll talk about our uniqueness, our individuality. So let me just try to clarify it right now. Why would the text tell us how different we all are if this is a text about unity? And here's the answer. Have you ever noticed how an orchestra has different instruments and they make different sounds? They may even play or rest at different times, and yet they are tuned together to play one song. Their individuality is for the purpose of their unity. That's the point of verses 7 through 16. So look with me now, beginning in verse 7 of Ephesians 4. But grace, interestingly, it's the Greek word charis, not charisma for gifts. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. At home in your drawer in the kitchen, you probably have measuring cups for different sizes and you put different amounts into the same meal to make a united product. Here is a similar principle. Christ gives different measuring amounts and different gifts to each part of his body. 
to use the example he uses in 1 Corinthians 12, many of you are familiar with the example of the body metaphor. Do you remember that part where he says the eye should not wish to be the ear, the hand should not wish to be the foot? Um, if he humorously says halfway through the chapter, if all of us were just one of those things, it would be a monstrosity. I think there are a lot of horror movies about just an eye or just a detached hand. His point here is that we're all different for the purpose of our unity. So pick up in verse 11 so that you see how that diversity works together. We'll come back to 8 through 10 later. Look down at verse 11 now. Here's the diversity that God has given, the individuality, to build up the unity. Verse 11. And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Just a quick description of what all these are. The apostles and prophets have a call from Jesus to reveal the gospel. Paul has already said in chapter 3, verse 1, that he is an apostle, and his role is to unfold the mystery of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 20, he said that the apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church. They're the initial revealers of the gospel. But the evangelist and the shepherd teachers have a call to both declare and teach the gospel. Evangelist is a very, very rare word in the Bible. It's only used three times. It's used here. It's used of Philip, who was a deacon, and so it's describing his ministry in the book of Acts. And it's used in 2 Timothy 4 when Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. So an evangelist shares the gospel. The word shepherd in Greek is the Greek word poimen, which some of your translations say pastor. And the word teacher is following grammatically the word shepherd. They're both defined by one definite article. So they're probably both describing the same office. So there's only four so far. Are you tracking? Apostles and prophets reveal the gospel. Evangelists and pastor teachers declare and teach the gospel. Of course, others in the church may teach, may evangelize, obviously, but these are descriptions of those particularly gifted by Christ for a specific purpose. And we see that now in verse 12. Look in verse 12. Why did Christ give these diverse roles? And the answer in verse 12 is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Paul says that those who have been set aside in these roles exist for the success of the saints. Their success is the saints' success. It would be like a coach who only succeeds when the players do well, who only succeed when the team wins. As I've been thinking through this passage, just frankly, I've been thinking through my life and how it's been different before I was a pastor and now after that I'm a pastor. Before I was a pastor, the vocations that I had, I often would have people, we would just talk casually about life and I had some really great gospel opportunities to share Christ with them. Now that I'm a pastor, when that comes up in the conversation, it sort of changes the conversation and how it works out. And I'm encouraged by seeing this passage again to remind me that though Christ has put me in a different role, now my joy is your success in what you can accomplish Monday through Saturday that I can't in the same way that I once was able to. One author puts it this way. The ministry of these four officials does not find its fulfillment in their own existence but only in the activity of preparing others to minister. 
And here we see at the end of verse 12, we have a shared ministry we're going towards, the building up of the body of Christ. And now follow in verse 13 as it tells us what the goal is aiming for. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Don't easily skip over these words, until we all. The idea is that the congregation together is growing in this way. Now the verse continues, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Samuel James wrote an article for Mere Orthodoxy at the end of May, and the title of his article is Does Maturity Still Matter? In the article, he makes the unfortunate observation that sometimes organizations, even churches, allow themselves to be taken captive by the least mature and perhaps most demanding of their group. But he reminds us that the goal actually is to see maturity occur, and maturity is something God delights in and calls us towards. Did you notice in these verses what are mature Christians like? Look in verse 13. They have a knowledge of the Son of God. They have a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, they're not easily deviated doctrinally. Verse 15, they're able to speak the truth in love. And verse 16, when each part is working properly, they are able and willing to do their part. So let's emphasize those last two by now looking at verse 15 and 16. Look in verse 15. Hallmark of maturing in Christ is speaking the truth in love. By speaking the truth in love, we together grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Let me remind us this morning that truth telling according to God is loving. We are to tell truth in a loving way. Certainly. But don't miss that according to God, truth telling is loving. Uh, I want to remind us this morning that the Bible says in 1 John 4 8 that God is love. But I fear in our culture what we actually believe is that love is God. Let me clarify the differences. When the Bible says God is love, the Bible means that God, by definition, is love and all that he says, all that he does, all that he decrees. God has never said anything unloving. God has never done anything unloving. Everything about God is loving. His holiness, his justice, his decree is all love. But our culture tends to believe that love is God. And by that, we mean the exact opposite. Whatever we do is loving. Whatever we say is love. Whatever we decide must be love, which means at the definitional level, we think we are God. So this morning, I want to correct us by the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6 says this, Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Philippians 1, 9 through 11 says, I pray that your love may abound more and more with all discernment. So when the Bible talks about love, it talks about it through the lens of truth. And what is this truth? Well, Ephesians has already said in chapter 1, verse 13, that when you heard the word of truth, you believed in Christ. Christ. 
And in chapter 6, when he talks about putting on the whole armor of God, he will talk about wearing the belt of truth. What is truth? Jesus tells us in John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them according to your truth. Your word is truth. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you in a month where you are pressured to confuse and separate truth from love, do not separate truth from love. Love is truth. Speak the truth in love. God is love. And all that he calls us to is love. And it is truth. So do not lay asunder what God has put together. Now verse 16. I want to press the role each one of us has. Verse 16 tells us, From the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, And don't miss this phrase. When each part is working properly. Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Every one of you. As believers. Every one of you. Has a gift and has a purpose. And only can we fulfill it when you will use it. Every one of you has a gift from Jesus Christ and a purpose from Jesus Christ. And we will only mature as a body if each one of us does our part. So let me anticipate some objections and dissuade them based on the authority of the Bible. Listen, you are not too old to use your gift. You are not too young to use your gift. You are not too busy to use your gift You are not too raw to use your gift. You are not ungifted. You are not too new. You are not too seasoned. Everyone has a gift to accomplish a purpose. And when we all use our gift, we can mature into what Christ has us for. You remember the parable of the talents? What did the man with one talent do? Do you remember? He buried it in the ground. And he said, I'll bury this because my master is harsh and he demands too much. Don't bury what Christ has given. Use it. Don't think you don't have the right gift. Don't think you can take a break interminably from the use of your gift. And don't say, well, I don't know how to use it, so I just won't use it. We serve, we learn, and we grow. As a church, uh, we don't have all this figured out. As elders, though, we've tried to think of seven areas of ministry and ways you could volunteer to serve in those areas of ministry. Surely we're going to have to learn and grow in that. But as your pastor, one of your pastors and elders, I want to make sure that I don't in any way lead you to believe that it would be okay for you not to use your gift. I have to encourage you to be equipped to do the work of the ministry because each one of you is vital. And God has given you a gift for this purpose. All right, this is not on your notes, but if you're a note taker, I now want to give four big truths about the church now that we've seen these verses. Four big truths about the church. Number one, church is not an audience or a place for spectators. We are all gifted for the work of the ministry. We almost all lost this a couple of years ago when things moved to televised But church is not an audience. It's not a place for spectators. 
We've all been equipped to do the work of the ministry. Number two, church is never finished here. We are constantly building up into the body of Christ. Number three, church is more than gathering together weekly, but it is never less than that. Did you notice the context in which he said we mature? It is in the body of Christ. J.T. English this week was writing an article and he wrote this. Many Christians seem to think that most of their maturing will happen outside of the local church through online ministry, through large conferences, or even through private devotion. But Paul insists in Ephesians 4 that the local church is the context for their maturity. All right, now number four, last big point. Church has one metric worth measuring. Look again in verse 13. Ephesians 4, until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. If you were asked off the record, how do you measure if your church is doing well? There might be several things that pop into your mind. I measure this, or I measure this, or I measure this. But God says we ought to measure this. Are we maturing into Christ-likeness? Are we maturing to the height that Christ wants to work in us? Now, I skipped verses 8 through 10 for a reason. Let's look at them now. Verses 8 through 10 of Ephesians 4. How is it that you and I could ever walk like this? And it's because of verses 8 through 10. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to, to men in saying he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, that is the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. This passage, as I learned in study, is actually a quotation of Psalm 68 but it makes an interesting change. Psalm 68 is about the military warrior of God who accomplishes his victory. And then Psalm 68, 18 says this, he receives gifts from men. And isn't that how war works? To the victor, go the spoils. But that's not what our text says. When Ephesians 4 quotes Psalm 68, 18, instead of saying that the victor received gifts, it says he gave gifts. Shockingly, what the risen victorious Jesus Christ does after defeating death, our sin debt, and the demonic powers on the cross is he ascends and then he shares his victory and gives his gifts to you and I. So how can we walk a new walk? Because we have a king of an upside-down kingdom who instead of receiving gifts, gives gifts and will give us the grace to carry out this new walk. So three responses to a passage like this today. First, I want to encourage you this morning to receive Christ. This whole passage has been about walking But we do have to do some honest assessment about what does my walk look like? And perhaps this morning you would be honest enough to admit, 
I'm still in Ephesians 2 verse 2 walk. I'm walking away from God. I'm walking how I want to walk and I'm living how I want to live. There's good news for you. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us has sent his son to walk on earth though he never walked like anybody on the earth. And not only did Jesus walk on earth, he walked the road to Calvary and he carried a cross on which he was condemned to deal with the sin that we deserve to be condemned for. But praise God, he who descended, ascended. And just as our debt was dealt with, he now gives his life. And so this morning, I want to encourage you, if you're honest enough to admit, I'm not walking the way God wants me to walk, then come to Christ for life and salvation. But secondly, you might be here and you're a Christian and you're saying, well, Josh, what, what, what do I do? I, I, I'm not perfect, but I have received Christ. Well, Christian, receive and steward his gifts He has made you a new creation so that you can walk in unity and so that you can use your individuality to build up our collective unity. But finally, Christian, rejoice in Christ's victory. He who descended ascended, destroying everything that stood against us, giving us the gifts of his spoils of war. And Ephesians 3.10 says that through the church he will make known the manifold wisdom of God to demonic principalities and powers. So let me remind you this morning, we serve a risen, victorious Savior. And we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let's pray together this morning. God, I thank you for Christ, our conquering King. And I thank you that as believers in him, there is nothing that can stand against us. Lord, because of the great love with which he loved us, its breadth, its length, its height, and its depth, grasp us to comprehend how much we are overcomers from sin, from death, from separation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We thank you more even, further even, that Jesus has taken his victory and then given us gifts to build his body. May none of us bury our gift, but move us to use it with a heart that says, here am I, Lord, send me. Father, I pray, though, for someone here this morning who maybe is walking away from God, walking according to their own Desires, May they realize this morning from the loving truth of God that that way leads to death. But Jesus descended so he can ascend and give them life. So Lord, before it's too late, move them to call upon the Lord and be saved. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, Go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.